First Thessalonians chapter four. Beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through chapter 5, verse 11. And we will uh, read, you can follow along, I'll read for us Article 37, the last judgment in our Belgic Confession of Faith. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. This is God's holy word. Inspired by the Spirit, without error, perfect to accomplish the purposes of God, given to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Article 37. Article 37, the last judgment. (laughs) Finally, we believe, according to the word of God, when the time appointed by the Lord, which is unknown to all creatures, is come, and the number of the elect complete that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven, corporally and visibly, as he ascended with great glory and majesty to declare himself judge of the living and the dead, burning this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it. Then all men will personally appear before this great judge, both men and women and children that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof, 
being summoned by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the trump of God. For all the dead shall be raised out of the earth, and their souls joined and united with their proper bodies in which they formerly lived. As for those who shall then be living, they shall not die as the others, but be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and from corruptible become incorruptible. Then the books, that is to say the consciences, shall be opened, and the dead judged according to what they shall have done in this world, whether it be good or evil. Nay, all men shall give account of every idle word they have spoken, which the world only counts amusement and jest. And then the secrets and hypocrisy of men shall be disclosed and laid open before all. And therefore the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and elect, because then their full deliverance shall be perfected, and there they shall receive the fruits of their labor and trouble which they have borne. Their innocence shall be known to all, and they shall see the terrible vengeance which God shall execute on the wicked, who most cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world, and who shall be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences, and shall become immortal, but only to be tormented in the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. But on the contrary, the faithful and elect shall be crowned with glory and honor, And the Son of God will confess their names before God, his Father, and his elect angels. All tears shall be wiped from their eyes, and their cause, which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious, will then be known to to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore, we expect the great day with a most ardent desire, to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In God's providence, we also end our study of the Belgic Confession today. We end the Gospel of Luke and the Belgian Confession. All kinds of change on the the horizon for us here in the near future. So we give thanks for that. We give thanks for God's providence in allowing us to study this great, wonderful confession of faith, the Belgic Confession. We also give thanks for God's special grace in revealing to us more about himself, that we might know him, uh, that we might know him more. The knowledge of God is not something that we ought to take lightly. It's uh, the most important thing that we can know. A.W. Tozer, theologian, 20th century, said, What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The end of our confession uh, reminds us of the setting of its writing, the occasion for it. it was written at a time of intense persecution of Reformed Christians. And the author, uh, Guy Debray, wrote it partially as an attempt to show that Reformed Christians are not heretics. They fall within the, the historical stream of Christianity. They're Trinitarian. They believe in salvation 
by grace. They're not interested in overturning any world powers or governments, but rather they were doing all things in order to give themselves to the proper worship of God. The writing, the words of this article, Article 37, The Last Judgment, it has a strong tilt towards the situation of persecution. It, you, you feel the intense persecution that uh, he and others were facing even as he writes this article and as we read it. He knew that this document could mean the end of his life, the author of our confession. And it did mean that. He died for writing this confession of faith. I want to take just a few minutes here and read a bit of the letter that he wrote to his wife just before his execution. And the the heartfelt nature of this letter, it reminds us a bit of the heartfelt nature of the article that we just read, uh, thinking about how God's people will be vindicated. Uh, But he writes this. Catherine, my dear and beloved wife and sister in our Lord Jesus Christ, your anguish and sadness disturb somewhat my joy and the happiness of my heart. So I am writing this for the consolation of both of us, and especially for your consolation, since you have always loved me with an ardent affection, and because it pleases the Lord to separate us from each other. I feel your sorrow over this separation more keenly than mine. I pray you not to be troubled too much over this for fear of offending God. You knew when you married me that you were taking a mortal husband who is uncertain of life, And yet it has pleased God to permit us to live together for seven years, giving us five children. If the Lord had wished us to live together longer, he would have provided the way. But it did not please him to do this, and may his will be done. And I pray you, my dear and faithful companion, to join me in thanking God for what he has done. For he does nothing that is not just and very equitable, and you should believe that it is for my good and for my peace." You have seen and felt my labors, cross, persecutions, and afflictions which I have endured and even had a part in them when you accompanied me in my travels during the time of my exile. Now my God has extended his hand to receive me into his blessed kingdom. I shall see it before you, and when it shall please the Lord, you will follow me. This separation is not for all time. The Lord will receive you also to join us together again in our head, Jesus Christ. This is not the place of our habitation. That is heaven. This is only the place of our journey. That is why we long for our true country, which is heaven. We desire to be received in the home of our heavenly Father, to see our brother, head, and Savior Jesus Christ, to see the noble company of the patriarchs, prophets, apostles, and many thousands of martyrs, into whose company I hope to be received when I have finished the course of my work, which I received from my Lord Jesus Christ. We see the writing that, where this, the writing of this confession took our brother, uh, Guy Debray. It took him to death. We also see the comfort of Article 37 deeply embedded in his heart. He, he believed it. He believed the truth of this article. We need to believe it as well. It's the capstone of our reformed faith. It's the, the doctrine It's the glue that holds it all together. And when you ask, really, you think of of what do we believe, why do we believe it, why do we live in light of what we believe, this is really the glue that holds it all together. If there is no final judgment, if there is nothing after this life, 
if there is no eternity that awaits us, then there would ultimately be no reason why we should live with such fierce commitment to the truth, why we should live with such fierce commitment to the life to which God calls us. And so this doctrine becomes a challenge, it becomes a comfort, it becomes an assurance, and it becomes motivation. Let's think about all those things together. Comfort, assurance, challenge, motivation. It is our hope of glory, for we know that this life is not forever. It's not forever. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, the second coming is the hope of glory and the comforts of Christians. Paul begins by addressing something that's in the the minds of some of the Christians of the day. There was a prevailing thought that only those who were alive at the coming of Christ would receive eternal life. They would receive the resurrection of the dead. And Paul very clearly, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he very clearly and unequivocally tells them that this is not right. In fact, when the Lord comes again, all people who have ever lived will be raised. Their confession says all people, men, women, and children who ever lived from beginning of the world unto the end will appear in person. Paul is writing that to the Thessalonians in order to comfort them. There are people who are obsessing over uh, trying to or worrying about the fact that they might not live to see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly none of them who were alive at that time lived to see the coming of Christ. But Paul says, ultimately, this second coming creates no disadvantage to those who are already dead. It's a comfort to all of us to know that the dead in Christ will be raised when he comes again. Those who have gone before us, loved ones who have lived this life and who have died in the Lord, when Jesus comes again, they will be raised. They will be raised to eternal life. The hope of glory is that Christ will come in majesty. In other words, he will come in a way that is relative to the kingship and the reign that he enjoys now. That's why it's so important for us to have that heavenly mindset of Christ reigning and ruling in heaven. Because we live with the knowledge that he is the king of kings. And one day it will be clear and it will be plain to all. The hope of glory will be with great glory and majesty. In Matthew chapter 24, we read, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. We read here that the tribes of the earth will mourn. Because they will know, they will know that now is coming the king of kings. It will be a day when all will realize that service to God and obedience to Christ was the most important calling of our lives. One life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ Will last. You know, I think back on my time in high school and I, I think about how much knowledge just sort of passed me by and how, in my immaturity, what I was most worried about was advancing 
uh, others' opinion of me, the, the opinions of others about me. People would think much of me, think I was a, a great athlete or a really nice guy. And you think back, and, and really what mattered was the, the knowledge that I did not pour myself into learning. There is so much that I could have gained and gleaned and all of these relationships that uh, have gone by the wayside and friends I don't keep in contact with anymore, sadly. Ultimately, if I would have given myself to my studies, I would have realized that I would have had something valuable there. There's something similar going on with the second coming of Christ. When he comes again, we will realize that the things we did for him, that is what matters. That is what ultimately matters. Do you have the foresight to live for that day? Do you have the foresight to live knowing that on the last day when Christ comes again, those things which you have done for him, those are, that is what will endure. Think to yourself, what idol do you hold in your hearts? What do you treasure or prize more than Christ? Pray and ask that God would reveal that to you because whatever you prize more than Christ in your heart, I can assure you it's not worth it. In the last day, the last judgment, we will know and we will understand that truly the greatest calling of our life, the most important thing, the most meaningful, and the only lasting thing was to serve our Lord, to serve our Lord. Great glory and great majesty, and we will all see him as he is. The coming of Christ means the end of the old order and the start of the new the elements of this world, the, the, the way of this world, the system of this world, it's all destined to be burned up. There's going to be a refining that God might bring forth uh, the, the glorification of this world and the age to come. So there's going to be a, uh, a burning away of all that is impure. And that tells us something about the hope that we are to have. Uh, really, ultimately, you read the the book of 2 Peter, at the end of 2 Peter, and he talks about this, that the earth and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and he speaks of the elements being set on fire and melting as they burn. There will be a a burning away of all that dwelt under the curse. And it reminds us that our hope is not to be in the order of things in this world. The many great things that the human race can accomplish and uh, all kinds of common grace blessings that God gives to us, but that cannot be where ultimately our hope lies. Our hope needs to be in something else. As our confession says, he will set this world afire to purge it, to purify it. But in the midst of this caution, don't hope in the system of this world, don't hope in that which will be burned up, He gives us a comfort. He gives us a a comfort. And that is this, that we are destined for immortality and imperishability. We will be given that which cannot fade away. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, says that the mortal body must put on immortality. And then he says in this uh, really a stunning verse of Scripture where he says, uh, Then shall come to pass the saying... Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Nowhere else, no no faith system, no belief, no religion, would you ever see the confidence to mock death. The mocking of death tells us something about the Christian hope that we have in the imperishable. 
staggering confidence that we see from the Apostle Paul. We read in our confession that as a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as the heart of man could never conceive. This is the great hope that Christians have. A glory that is beyond even what we could not conceive. That provides motivation for us to remember. Are you serving your God? Or have you, do you have on the throne of your heart an idol? Are you prizing something more than Christ? Love him. Be, to, be devoted to him. Paul also speaks, though. It's the hope of glory. It's the comfort of Christians. But the day of the Lord is a day of both judgment and rescue. That's what Paul says in the most of the remainder of our passage. In chapter or verse 2 of chapter 5, he speaks of this day of the Lord. And that's, uh, that brings us to all kinds of places in Scripture that talk about the day of the Lord. Sometimes the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's a day of judgment. So Isaiah chapter 13, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. It's a day of judgment, a day of wrath. God is a God who is just, and he is a God who is a God of wrath and wrath towards sin. So it's a day of judgment. Joel chapter 1 says the same exact thing. The day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. God is a God of justice. God is a God of wrath. He will punish sin, sin that has not been atoned. But the day of the Lord is also a day of rescue. It's also a day of rescue. We need to understand that when we study the scriptures and when we see the way that God has been revealed, he has both justice and mercy. One of the great things, the great comforts of us is that we, you don't read in the scripture that God delights to show wrath. Right? We actually read that he takes no delight in the judgment of the wicked. But he's a God who delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy and to save sinners. So the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's also a day of rescue. Isaiah 27 says this. In that day, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. Jeremiah chapter 30. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the yoke of sin off your neck. I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of you. But you shall serve me. I will raise you up to serve me. And I will atone for your sin. So the day of the Lord is a day of both uh, judgment and rescue. On which side of the ledger will we fall and how can we be sure of it? Well, one thing about the day of the Lord is that it, it is unexpected and it's unwelcome. Nobody knows the day, which, uh, and that's so clear in Scripture. It should make us stand in awe, confusion almost, that people who continually try to predict the day that the Lord will return, continue to gain an audience in this world. It's so clear. It comes like a thief in the night, it says. So it's unexpected and unwelcome. That's what a thief is, right? A thief isn't just unexpected. He's unexpected and unwelcome, right? A surprise party is unexpected. Oh, what a nice surprise. But a thief in the night is unexpected and unwelcome. Why? Because no one longs for the day when all of the careless words they have spoken and all of the hidden intentions of their hearts are made known and all of the secrets of men are uncovered and laid bare. So this is a terrible, terrible and awful reality as our confession says to the wicked and the disobedient. 
But Paul says that the knowledge of this day, the knowledge that this day is coming, ought to change your life in such a way that it transforms it from terror to joy. It transforms the reality of the day of the Lord from terror to joy. So he says in verse 4, You brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. And so Paul says it's, it's not just the unexpectedness that can be taken away for the Christian. It's the unwelcomeness. It's not just that, it's not that we know it's coming, but it's still a terror to us. It actually is a comfort to us. Why and how? Well, he tells us in the remainder of our passage tonight. He says in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 5, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that we, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. In other words, what Paul is calling us to do is trust and believe and obey the call of the gospel. It's a call to obey the gospel. We are not appointed to suffer wrath, but to receive what? Salvation. What does salvation assume? Sin. It assumes that we are redeemed from our sin. So Paul is not saying, look, those who are destined for wrath, we, we, we know simply the way that they live and the way that we act, but we're better than them. We're so much better. We're so No, Paul is saying that the hope of glory and the hope of comfort for us is that we will be saved through the blood and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. As our confession says, when Christ comes again, our full redemption will be completed. Our full redemption will be completed. We will be redeemed to the full and to the end. Always know that it is the gospel and the blessings of the covenant of grace that are our hope. The death and work of Christ is our plea. As Romans 5 says, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the wicked that he might save us from our sin. So this means that we live in light of this all-encompassing reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and who rose again on our behalf. It's about having our lives transformed with the reality of Christ and the cross, and as we look forward, knowing that this day is coming, even though we don't know exactly when, but we know that it is coming, it's no longer unexpected, and it's no longer unwelcome because the hope of our life is Christ because we live trusting in Him, with faith in Him always. It's, it's a call to continually believe the gospel that you are forgiven of your sin in Christ. And if you are clinging to Him and trusting in Him at the last day, we know that we will be saved. So cling to Christ. And then live in light of His coming. So there's a, there is a moral aspect to the way that we are to live in light of the, of, of the coming of Christ. And the first thing that Paul says is uh, be self-controlled. He repeats that twice in the last few verses of our passage. Be self-controlled. In other words, uh, don't be asleep, be awake, be morally and spiritually engaged in your life. Understand and know that God calls you day by day to serve him and to live a certain way. Romans 13 says much of the same language. 
The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, but clothe yourselves with Christ. Clothe yourselves with Christ. So we are to be morally and spiritually engaged in our life. I was reading Jonathan Edwards' resolutions this week, and very, it's a great encouragement. You can pull those up, and he, he wrote about 100 or so resolutions. And it, it's the evidence of a man who is morally and spiritually engaged in his life. Listen to a couple of these. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved, to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Resolved, to frequently renew the dedication of myself to God which was made at my baptism, which I solemnly renewed when I was received into the communion of the church and which I have solemnly remade today. Resolved, never henceforward till I die, to act as if I were in any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. Paul says, wake up from your slumber. Look at what Christ has done for you. Look at the cross, look at the resurrection, how he perfected your salvation. Can you know that? Can you truly know that? And have it completely unaffect your life, not affect your life at all. Can you know that the day of judgment is coming and you don't act any differently? Can you know that your creator and your redeemer is coming again to judge the living and the dead? And if you truly know that, is your life going to remain completely unchanged? No, of course not. So be morally, be spiritually engaged, be self-controlled, be aware of what's going on, and then be virtuous. Paul says, have faith and hope and love. Faith and hope and love. Faith and hope and love. He says, put on uh, faith and love as a breastplate. So he, he reminds us that our spiritual life is a war. It's a battle. It's something we need to engage in each and every day. And then he says, the hope of Christ as a helmet. He has this uh, spiritual armor. People have tried to connect this to Ephesians 6. And really Paul's point is just to remind us that the spiritual life is a battle. And if you have faith and hope and love, you are sufficiently armed to walk with your God, to walk with Christ all of our days. So we are to be self-controlled. We are to be wise. We are to be virtuous. We are to see the coming day. And we are to know that God calls us to live in light of this knowledge, that it might not overtake us like a thief. Live like he's coming today. Live like he's coming today. Act like he's coming now. Resolved to never do anything that I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. The God who knows all things and who sees all things, if there's something that we know we would never want to be caught doing while he came back, why would we ever do it? Why would we ever do it? I'll close tonight by reading the end of Debray's letter to his wife. He said, I am practicing now what I have preached to others. And I must confess that when I preached, I would speak about the things I am actually experiencing as a blind man speaks of color. 
kind of true of me too. Preach a lot of sacrifice and uh, faith to the end to the Lord Jesus for the Lord Jesus Christ. The things that I ultimately don't know a lot about. But he goes on to say, since I was taken prisoner, I have profited more and learned more than during all the rest of my life. I am in a very good school. The Holy Spirit inspires me continually and teaches me how to use the weapons in this combat. On the other side is Satan, the adversary of all the children of God. He is like a boisterous, roaring lion. He constantly surrounds me and seeks to wound me. But he who has said, fear not, I have overcome the world, makes me victorious. And already I see that the Lord puts Satan under my feet and I feel the power of God perfected in my weakness. He gives us an example to look to the last day, to trust in Christ and believe the gospel each and every day, to make that your boast and your hope, and to trust in God's sanctifying work in you. May God be pleased to do that in all of us and keep us to the last day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for this coming week that we might serve and honor you. We thank you and we praise you for the many good things, the many good blessings that you give to us. Thank you for this confession of faith. We pray that uh, you will be pleased uh, to show us more of yourself, even from this passage tonight. We thank you for the time that we have had studying this, and we thank you for the the heritage that we uh, have been given. Father, may we guard it, and may we stand upon conviction, the truth that we find in your word uh, that was inspired by your spirit. So we thank you, Father. We pray that you would keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. Three sixty eight in our blue hymnal. One, two, and four. Rejoice the Lord is King. We'll stand together, sing one, two, and four. Rejoice the Lord is King.